HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. sound a little funny, but it's okay. I'm joined today by Lee from Pennsylvania. Hello, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Severin. How are you doing? Oh, really good. We just had the sailboat. Um, we just sailed the sailboat from Vermont to Manhattan, and then we sold. We just sold $6,000 two days in a row and hauled everything around and kind of burnt myself out, but it was a success. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you cut out there just for a second. How, how's it going over your way? Well, things are things are pretty good. Um, the the weather's nice, and it's and it's uh, still good enough weather to get out into the field and to meet with the farmers and take care of uh, field visits and inspections. So life is good. So I just um I just come from a meeting of the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Project Northeast. Service Provider Network, which uh-huh. is um, a long way to say people who've made their careers in supporting farmers, often with, like, office work and technical assistance, and that's not usually the focus of my, the show, but I just wanted, I felt like, um, I felt like it might be an important thing to highlight to folks who are interested in agriculture, agricultural topics, but maybe don't feel like they're um, suited for production ag or they have um, other considerations or life skills that they want to apply but still be in agriculture. And so maybe you could speak to your own life and why you chose to do what you do, supporting organic farmers with certification um, and other uh, other kinds of programming. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. I'd, I'd be happy to. It's, it, it's really pretty... Uh a pretty exciting field to be in, and it's so incredibly diverse. Um, I've worked in various segments of 
of agriculture, not only in production agriculture, but as you said, in agricultural education. And I found, I found it to be very rewarding in that, um, it's a learning, uh, it's a learning environment, not only for, uh, you know, the farmer who we prepare and deliver educational programs to, but for myself as well. Um, getting out and, and meeting different people and walking their farms, uh, seeing what they do, uh, matching it against my experiences and the experiences of those that I've, uh, that I've spoken to, and it's just a great opportunity to gather information and really help disseminate really good ideas that happen on the ground. So ag education has been a pretty good field, honestly. Um. So you, you, it seemed like you started your career out in the um, in the arid regions and more with rangeland uh-huh. science in Texas, and then you mm-hmm. moved east. You want to talk about um, how the how the ranch community and the more uh, farm community are different, or what motivated that shift um, for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I don't know. I've I've had the good fortune to be able to. Um, experience various types of agriculture in various regions, South Texas on the Gulf Coast, um, uh, southwest Montana in an arid region where we got about eight inches of annual precipitation, and that included snowfall. And uh, then now in Pennsylvania where our uh, annual um, precipitation is around 40 to 45 inches a year, um, I, it was a it was a real big learning experience working with the ranchers out in, in Southwest Montana. I did a lot of work uh, with our uh, with, with our rancher clientele, um, especially with uh, rangeland monitoring education, an awful lot of uh, uh, alfalfa and alfalfa rotation type of, of cropping system uh, assistance, and um, really got to learn an awful lot about. Uh, some of the constraints that that, that they go through, uh, not only with having such low precipitation, but having a growing season that, believe it or not, is only 90 days long at that elevation. So it was a big learning experience. Yikes. Those guys are tough up there. Well, they are, and it's... um, it's, Something that that is passed down from generation to generation, and it's something that 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 really is is uh, kind of institutionalized uh, among the whole community. Um, there, uh, I was working with beef cattle ranchers um, in Southwest Montana at an elevation of anywhere from 45 uh, to 100 feet to 6,000 feet, and uh, in this in this area, they would get one one cutting of hay. Uh, during the year, um, the cattle would spend um, most of the summer up in the national park on the on, on the grazing land. They would come down and they would uh, they would they would um, get worked in the in the corrals and get ready for the winter. They'd be overwintered on the hay fields. Uh, calving season usually started in January or February, whenever it was 20 below outside. And uh, those cows there in Montana don't know what a barn is, so. It's a lot different than agriculture in Pennsylvania, let me tell you. Well, and probably bringing that experience of those more extreme weather conditions to the... I mean, I just think about Pennsylvania as just, like, dreamy in terms of really great soils, 
really good proximity to market, amazing infrastructure for ag and family farming tradition, a lot of co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, just from an agricultural perspective, a really uh, ideal set of conditions compared to some of these more marginal areas. But um, but maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to understand how, what what do you bring to ag service other than, like, you know, over time gathering together case studies of what other people have tried and what has succeeded? Um in terms of your counsel to people who might be entering into ag education as a career, how to prepare themselves and what you've, how you've learned from, from mentors or, or prepared yourself for this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. Um, I don't know. Probably, probably the best thing that I've learned over my 17 years in ag education is that the number one um, uh, the number one ideal that we need to keep in the top of our mind whenever we're talking to someone, say, who wants to come into agriculture or someone who has a particular issue on their farm that they need to overcome is that is that every single farm is different and everybody has their own individualized goals. And those goals are what have to drive, I guess, you know, any new innovations, any new techniques or methodologies that, that are going to be employed on the farm. It's um, it, it's not a case where we can just box something up from Montana, however good it is, or Texas, or, you know, Louisiana, or wherever, and bring it to Pennsylvania and say, here, you know, try to take something out of this box and see, because this is what I've seen that's worked. What I've seen is work more, more, more than anything is en- engagement. And that means I don't have all the answers, the farmer doesn't have all the answers, but I have to, I have through my travels, I've been able to learn how to go about and seek those out from people, from my own experience, from the, you know, digging in the experience of the farmer uh, on the field where we are, um, other extension professionals, other nonprofit people, other farmers, and just kind of uh, developing a network, you know, and being able to uh, to address something from the ground up. So it's more of a process, I think, than it is than it is having the tools. I think, I think. Uh, a seasoned agricultural educator realizes that his toolbox is pretty minimal. You know, what he has is he's developed a process of, of of how to go about solving a problem and engaging people, and then looking at the different methodologies that might fit from the region, from outside the region. Because the thing is, is is uh, I think we always have to 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 think about uh, thinking outside the box and really experimenting on the farm. Um, something that Ian Mitchell Lyons said the last time I saw him at one of our field days, he said, experiment. He said, do something, do something different on your farm because it's going to change something. You don't know what it will change, but you never know until you do it. So sometimes whenever there's a question, it's just a matter of having that inquisitive spirit and doing that little bit of experimentation and seeing what's going to work and what's not because that's how we get knowledge on the farm, and uh, that's certainly how I've learned over time. Well, I'm, you know, just looking ahead at um, the kinds of challenges, I mean, the kinds of trainings that we're getting now through this Beginning Farmer Service Provider Network, professional development, you know, whatever, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. It's amazing to get that, to, have, to you know, be a beneficiary of a government-supported program for technical assistance. But uh, I realize how um, much 
science is not not only coming down, you know, to the farm, but science um, in the in the model of extension, but the science is also arising from the farm. And so much of the training that we're getting is about uh, initiatives that started out of a farmer's frustration with a lack of a service that they turned into a software program, or they they wrote a book on farm uh, bookkeeping, or et cetera, et cetera. And that in fact. Um, as we've seen a reduction in extension over the um, over the course of the last you know few decades and a decline in the service that's really available to farmers, we have ourselves to do a better job networking more farmer to farmer and using the internet and 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 um, and sharing the resources that we have. But I think part of that, and you kind of alluded to this, is to to um, figure out how we're going to be experimenting and sharing the results of our experimentation around um, climate change resilience. So I wondered if you had any thoughts um, about about how the next few decades might look in terms of what kind of service people can expect to get from off-farm, from kind of professional assistance, and how they build out um, kind of community Right. Well, I, I, I that, it brings up it brings up um, your comments bring up uh, a, a memory that I have of a of a college course I took at the University of Montana. Neva Hassanin was my professor, and she wrote a she wrote a book, and it was basically um, the the subject of a research study where she had validated the fact that some of the best, most useful, long lasting change comes from more than not, farmer networks, um, because that's where the information is, and farmers tend to really, really like to listen to other farmers because they have that level of credibility. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing this, uh, this, this real rise of, of, uh, of farmer engagement. And I see institutions like Penn State University and Penn State Extension really latching onto that model, and they're realizing that in more cases than not, the university and especially the research arm becomes that verification validation mechanism. In other words, get the ideas that are happening on the farm. Try to see if it can be replicated scientifically to find out information on why and how it's working, what's going on, and if it can be disseminated further. So I think that's probably, in my opinion, going to be um, the the... The, the, the trend in the future of ag education, it's going to start from the grassroots um, because I see it even now, um, every day when I'm in the field with farmers. I was just on a field a couple of weeks ago with a farmer, and uh, he was an organic farmer, and as you know, organic farmers, uh, dairy producers have to, uh, have to uh, document at least 30% of their dry matter intake from pasture during the grazing season. And it was it was so incredible to listen and look and and watch um, this farmer's uh, way of extending his grazing grazing season and rotating crops and rotating animals. He had a very uh, he had a very innovative way of doing it that worked on his farm and got him up to a very high level of dry matter intake. Um, and he came up with this all by himself. To go figure, right? Um, uh, you know, necessity, the mother of invention, right? So it's, it's these types of innovations, I think, that are happening on the farm um, that, that, can, that can then be 
um, developed and, and, and extended and disseminated through um, what I think is an excellent uh, model of extension, having, having county offices and regional offices. There's, it, it's an excellent model. Um, it's just a matter of using it in the most appropriate way that, uh, uh, possible. And so then the, the kind of role of the facilitator or the role of the kind of repackaging that information and spreading that information and, you know, coordinating the, coordinating the knowledge as opposed to pouring the knowledge into empty vessels. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the, the the empty vessel model, I think, just does not work. I think we all kind of know that. How many times have you, Severin, been at a farmer meeting or something like that that was you were talked down to and you kind of glazed over after about seven minutes? It happens to us all, and it's not that it's not the educator's fault. It's the model. I think the model that is truly inspiring is that one that's from kind of the grassroots up. You know? Well, and and the question I'm having, you know. We had a great we had a great session today about um, ag squared and about you know using more bookkeeping and aggregating data across farms and being able to then you know compare within the northeast region all of these different diversified organic vegetable farms who were all using say ag squared for their production data and then being able to ascertain across the industry some benchmarks around you know what you should expect to, to yield or how, you know, how you're doing relative to others in the field. And, you know, aside from some issues that I have about, like, well, you know, it's a little bit scary to me that all this data is now in the public, it's exciting to me that we're, we, could, we can have that kind of um, open source comparing of knowledge and comparing of production, just even at the production level. And then if you think three steps further and you think, well, if we're talking about adapting to climate change, if there are farmers within that network who are growing different varieties, you know, trying to extend into the shoulder seasons, working with um, different factors and exploring different factors like cover cropping around um, for flooding resistance, for um, resilience during flooding, all these kinds of um, experiments that we could be aggregating data much in a much broader way than we could just with the little experiment stations um, that are more from the kind of um, 1900s model. We're in the 2000s now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's that's I think the grassroots, um, you know, farmer centric model just kind of exploded. You know, it. I, I think that has all kinds of applicability. I mean, even for such mundane things as price discovery, I mean, that's one thing that farmers are always trying to do. It's like, how much do I sell this for? Or I have no idea. You're talking about benchmarks, you know, for for yields or price or cost of production or anything like that. And all that is information sometimes that a farmer just doesn't have um, being kind of insulated on their own farm, you know. But being a part of a network like this, I mean, knowledge is power, right? I mean, I think if they were to... It, it, find themselves put in this milieu where, where where they kind of understood where they where they stood in in perspective to their peers i think that i think that's empowering um you know from a uh from a personal perspective as well as you know a financial and productive so i think it, i i think that's a that's an excellent way to uh to to take the network and ex- and expand it 
And so then so another another kind of facet um, that really came about come, came up for me this 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 training workshop was around kind of some of the structural legacies of discrimination and exclusion um, within the USDA and you know the the problems with loans going you know preferentially to white farmers over black farmers and um, ex- um, you know discriminatory practices and you know overall the fact that a lot of the structures within agriculture in the United States have served, served one kind of agriculture over another kind. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to uh, focus a little bit of you, since you know about um, NCAT, and that, that we don't, you know, that yes, the majority of programs within the, United, within the USDA are, are, um, are oriented towards commodity production, but that there are programs whose explicit purpose is more around um, democratizing information around for sustainable and appropriate practices. So I wanted to make sure that we covered that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did because that's always been a sticking point for uh, many advocates of 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 a more um, of a more, I guess, sustainable agriculture. You know, and I'm talking in its large term of of of, of not only ecological but social sustainability. And um, I mean, what it, it it is true that that the mass amount of USDA dollars go towards the commodity um, programs, right? Whether whether it's insurance or whether it's research or such like that. And, and organic and sustainable agriculture gets really a pittance, and it's always um, seen as as discretionary spending and something that can be dropped, you know, uh, and and something that. And, and but I've always thought of it as like nickels on on the the floor of of, of the House of Congress. It's it's some it, the amount of money that they're putting to programs for organic agriculture for sustainable agriculture to fund NCAD. I mean, for the Atcher project, that's only that's less than two and a half million dollars a year. That's nothing, Severin. Right? Nothing. But look at the at, at, at the at the work that they do uh, with that meager amount of money for a year. They they reach literally millions of people, hundreds of thousands of individual downloads on the publications that they write and that they research and the technical assistance that they get. I think it's an incredible bang for your buck. It's a model that could be looked at, right, for uh, for for other uh, for for other uses. Um, I don't know it's always kind of bugged me that that we do, but you know, you and I and and our listeners certainly know, you know, the reason why, um, you know, all of all of uh, you know research and and uh, and subsidies goes towards conventional agriculture. Um, you know, it's our it's our philosophy of of industrialization that has led us to this place, um, and we are, I mean, we are are embedded in it. It you know, I don't. And, and unless and unless we have a radical change of philosophy, a philosophy of inclusion, a philosophy of of of, of more a more a more agrarian philosophy, where I'm using the term agrarian the way that Paul Thompson does, the um, ag ethics professor uh, that I had at Texas A and M, um, where we're talking about the full extent of what agrarian values are in agrarian philosophy, it's 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 absolutely opposite of of how we do things in an industrialized philosophy. That's not to say industrialized philosophy is, is necessarily wrong. It's just that we have we have taken that philosophy and we have spread it across every single thing that we do 
and agriculture might not be a very good place to, 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 to have that type of philosophy. So I, I like this, and I, um, you know, it's easy to get instructions in you do your books and pieces. Say again? It's easy in the derision of, oh, well, you know, this is just a hobby farm or you're inexperienced um, as a startup. But, but can you explain what you mean by agrarian um, and how that might differ from some of the values that are embedded in our notion of agricultural success? Yeah, I think it starts with a... With I think it's best to kind of uh, draw a distinction between agrarian and industrial work. We're looking at the industrial philosophy, which is very, which is based upon efficiency. You know, it's based upon numbers. It's based upon um, uh, concentration and all the efficiencies that come out of that, right? And we know that that's, that that can be a really good thing for certain things. You know, we're producing widgets or something, and it's really helping us to get these widgets, or we've got a lot of great vaccines out because of this, or whatever. You know, th- th- those are separate arguments. Um, but agriculture is, I think, fundamentally different um, because it involves something that's so incredibly uh, intimate to us. Um, not only life-giving, but... but culture generating and culture sustaining um, and I would I would I would make a distinction between uh, the efficiency of industrial philosophy and a focus on health and well-being in an agrarian philosophy um, if our metrics of success would were to be more focused on health and well-being and sustainability as opposed to yields efficiency, and low cost, you know, I think that we could see an agriculture that would not only uh, dispel with the notion that we can't feed people with that type of agriculture, because we obviously could if we had more farmers on the land, working the land, you know. Um, I think that we could genuinely, um, I think we could genuinely, you know, feed our populations. I think we could have a much more diverse, um, uh, array of foodstuffs at the at, at the local grocery stores, and it would bring us a lot closer, uh, whether you're a farmer or not, to what agrarianism really is, and it is living according to the natural ecological cycles of of the land and the seasons. And uh, I don't know; it's just very interesting to think about what what that landscape might look like. You know. Um, very it's 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 very compelling it's very compelling to me too and i um as as you know somewhat of a punk in the beginning farmer service scene being in, you know affiliated with a small nonprofit and um not being part of extension or or part of farm service agency uh farm service agency or university program um it's really nice to have um to see to see the trends of, of where attention gets focused and to see where the attention doesn't get focused and to think about, um, you know, the role for new organizations to come into this, for the role for non-professionals who are just like, I mean, I'm just thinking about, <clears throat> like, retired executives and retired bookkeepers and retired graphic designers or 
Clark, you know, friend to barter graphic design and, and bookkeeping for farmers just as a way to extend the capacity of um, this, you know, growing community of new farmers who need services um, and, and as there's a contraction in how much service is really is being provided kind of formally through the system. Mm-hmm. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you've been doing this for 17 years, if you could reflect on, you know, where the emphasis has been in farm service and where where you feel like it, it could go to support, uh, you know, the resettling uh, project that is, you know, in, in my opinion at least, right ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, I'll start with where I think it's going. I think it's going towards farmer networks. Um, as, as the primary tool and driver for education, um, you know, on, on farming and agriculture, it, because that's, that's very community centric. Um, and those have been, I think, some of the most, uh, influential and effective ways because people get together and they'll have, they'll have lunch or they'll have a pasture walk or they'll have a field walk and they'll discuss and, you know, meeting at, at each other's farms once a month type of thing. Very, very low key, but, but incredible amount of education happening there. Um, that's a, that's a very, uh, finite, you know, in place centered approach. Um, you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, going online and having access to all types of, uh, to, to a rather a community, I guess, of, of, of farmers and other individuals who are sharing information. I think that's the same, I think that's the same type of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of method, you know. Um, that's where I see it going. Um, and I see service providers as facilitating that. I see them as really uh, trying to bolster that and bring together those connections. Um, which is off, which has been hard for the universities to do, I think, in, in a while, because we've had, you know, the the land grants have been the county agent, the teachers, the ones to go to to get your questions answered, you know. And um, although we have a lot of, you know, really smart, really capable uh, extension agents that are doing that, there's 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 no better information than sharing one on one, you know on the ground, what's going on on the farm, farmers asking farmers. And so I think that's where it's going. Where it's been, yeah, I'm a graduate of Texas A&M University. Just, I mean, total uh, um, conventional agriculture education. And uh, one of my professors uh, told, told the class one time in an ag marketing class that um, small farms, are what's killing agriculture in the U.S. because they um, because they cannot maintain uniformity or uh, the amount of products that need to go into the pipeline, and it brings prices down. And in that industrial model, it sure does. You know, if you're selling on the conventional market, which is why most small farmers aren't selling on the conventional market anymore, anyway. But it just goes to show you that there's a, that that's what we've come from. We've come from uh, this this hyper uh, top down approach, uh, you know, really kind of fo- focused on furthering the green revolution, to more of an agrarian revolution. I think where it's all kind of grassroots, and the information and the dissemination um, is is held in the hands of the people who really need it. 
Well, I um, I think it, it it ratifies a lot of my own instincts in this area, and I think, um, you know, between Greenhorns and Farm Hack and Agrarian Trust and National Young Farmers Coalition, a lot of the work I've been involved with has been around building those networks. I feel like they need a lot, you know, that there's room for a lot more work in that space and that, you know, Rodale is, um, Atra is in that space, you know, Rafi, NCAT, Organic Farmers Research Foundation have been all, you know, resource partners in building the infrastructure for that kind of farmer-to-farmer connectivity and doing it in a way that, um, you know, isn't isn't pushing people towards, um, towards contracts or towards, um, you know, predatory lending or towards, yeah. you know, vulnerability yeah. in the marketplace. And I just, I just feel like the kind of takeaway from this conversation for me is how important, especially as so much of this information is digital um, and we rely so much on our digital networks to maintain the kind of democratic structure um, of that sharing and be really resolute in our, in our, in our defense of and understanding of those networks as, you know, our, of the farmers and for the farmers and that we really, you know, we have to fight for them um, if they come under threat. I think that's, I think that's put really succinctly. Yeah, I think I, I, I totally agree with you there. And, and it made me mindful, you know, as you were explaining, uh, just how, how important um, you know, these organizations are to provide support for this burgeoning, growing type of agrarian network. I call it agrarian network. Some people may not, but I do because it seems to be more focused on on the community and on health than it is on, on anything else. And um, thanks for that. That's, that, that. that's my take home is, is, uh, is the important work that the organizations are doing. So how can people find you and your programming um, on uh, on the Internet? Oh, that's easy. P.A. Organic, one word, paorganic.org uh, is the website for Pennsylvania Certified Organic, USDA accredited third-party certifier. We're nonprofit certified to the National Organic Program. We do some education and outreach, too, and we certify to gluten-free, and we have a new grass-fed standard, too. So check us out. And you guys are actively recruiting more farmers for Pennsylvania to come over there and get more acreage under organic cultivation and get more farms started and build the rural economy. Is that what I've heard? Absolutely. We've got, we, there's, there's property here that could be farmed and grazed. There's milk markets that could use some, some organic milk. There's vegetables that could be sold and, you know, locally and as far away as Philadelphia and D.C., there's there's opportunity. There really is. Well, I appreciate so much your time, and I appreciate all of you who listen to the podcast. Um, we have a bunch of really great people scheduled, thanks to our new producer, Evan Driscoll, in Texas, who's come in to help for Joe and Jack and the wonderful team at Heritage Radio Network in Brooklyn, who are wonderful people. Please do to their other programs support them if you have the means to do so with some change, some dollar change. Um, I want a couple announcements to make before we go off. There's a Maine Farmland Trust annual meeting coming up next week, um, on November the 7th. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk in at the Salt Institute in Portland, Maine, 
there's uh, also a really wonderful um, set of winter conferences coming up. And so if you haven't already booked out and figured out which conferences you're going to be going to this winter, you know, coordinate with your with your other interns on your farm, with your friends and colleagues, you know, share cars, share rooms, you know, consider doing Airbnb instead of being in a terrible hotel or, you know, coordinating to stay on someone's farm and, you know, turn your winter education session into a social phenomenon not to be forgotten. Uh, okay, bye-bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 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 Listening.